Hi, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Laura Worrell is a writer based in Los Angeles. Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm is her first novel. The story follows a 40-year-old jazz musician and womanizer, Circus Palmer. But this book centers the women in his life. It is a telling of their stories, not only his. Laura and I talk about her wonderful debut and her path to publication, which is an inspiring tale of persistence. And from a bit of a different angle, we muse on that perennial question, can we separate the art from the artist? I love Laura's book, and this was an enriching conversation. I hope you enjoy listening in. Here is my conversation with Laura Worrell. Laura, I'm so excited to have this conversation. We just had a, a mini conversation before we record. I'm very excited about this. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I normally start these conversations by asking about sort of you, to have you describe who you are. And, you know, of course, we know you as a writer and you're also a writing teacher. How would you begin to describe yourself beyond those titles? Wow, what a great, juicy first question. So, yes, I am a writer, the author of Sweet Saw Plenty Rhythm. I also teach writing at the college level, so creative writing and and, uh, freshman composition and those types of things. Outside of that, that's a really good question because I have been thinking about that recently. I have been so focused for so long on writing and getting published and making my dream happen that I have let a lot of hobbies and other aspects of my my personality kind of fall by the wayside. And so I'm determined in this next year to retrieve them. I'm a very sort of creative person and I really like to discover life and other people and, and understand my relationships and my human experience through a variety of different creative forms of expression. I like to take pictures. I like to draw. Um, I even am trying to be a better cook, which I think is a way to have a, a more interesting human experience. But I especially like other creative people's expressions. So I'm somebody who goes to a lot of museums and I love film, adore music. And I also really like to travel. So I guess what sort of brings all of that together is having a real appreciation and curiosity about life and other people and the human experience. And my way of uh, exploring that is especially through art and other people's work. And so, as I said, in 2023, I am reinvesting my energy into, into that. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I, I love, I mean, you really feel that too in your book, because it is so centered around music and other people's artistry. So that's really cool. And I love what you're describing, the, all the different ways to be creative, because there are so many, right? And like you said, cooking, right, right, just living a creative life. I guess we'll, we'll start by talking a little bit about your wonderful book. So Sweet Plenty Rhythm, it centers around a 40-year-old jazz musician, Circus, who is also a womanizer. <laughs> but, the, but the book really focuses on the women in his life the ones he seduces and leaves, but also his teenage daughter who was affected by his disappearing ways as well. Yes. And 
what drew me to this book initially, really, what, what really ex- was really exciting to me was knowing that you chose to show the women in the story and they're not just supporting characters to this guy who hurt them, but really drawing them out on the page and giving them voice and agency and showing that they have full lives too. Yes. Um, so I really wanted to talk about that and that is those decisions. And I also wanted to ask you if you've read Minor Characters by Joyce Johnson. No. In have fact, I will <gasps> write that down as I... Joyce Johnson, Okay, I was so minor excited car- to ask you okay. about this because... <laughs> Tell me about yeah, it. It's one of, Yes, it's one of my favorite books, and I have to admit, it's been a minute since I've read it. I really want to go back to it, but it's actually it's written by one of Jack Kerouac's old lovers, oh. and and really maybe more than that, she was really just in love with him and was really uh, in relationship with him, but always sort of in the shadows. And she knew him before he became famous. Okay, and the book is really about the women of the Beat Generation and sort of there's stories behind the men that were really the well-known ones, you know, and I, I love that book so much for the fact that she's doing what you did as well. It's sort of like, no, no, no. Let's like talk about the women that were behind this too. You know, you know, I think I've heard about this book. I went through a Kerouac phase in high school and into college. And so I did a deep dive on him. But the way that you described it is is exactly the reason that I wanted to do it this way, because I feel like, and it, and it sounds like Joyce Johnson's book does the same thing, which is, you know, there are women in this world that we're fascinated by, right? In the case of the Beats, they're not just these these guys' lovers or mothers or wives. They have lives. They might have been writers too. They might have been more than muses, not only because they're just beautiful. I know that that happened a lot for these guys and happens for a lot of male artists, but that there's something about those women, right, beyond the surface. And so I feel like my book is doing something similar, right, revealing that. Um, And I feel like there have been so many books. In fact, I remember at one point rewriting one of my drafts of this book. There was a TV show. I think it came and went. And it was about a womanizer. And I don't remember. I didn't watch it. I just saw the sort of ad on, you know, whatever it was on um, Netflix or whatever the channel it was on. And I was like, here we go again. <laughs> Here's another story about a, a womanizer, a playboy, or whatever your your term is for it, depending on your generation. Those are great stories. They're engaging. Those characters are clearly compelling, um, not only to the women in their lives, but those of us in their audience. But we rarely hear about the women outside of the sort of types they play, the fantasies they fulfill, and how they're supporting that male character's journey. And so I wanted to turn the the lens and show the women, show that that relationship isn't as sexy or glamorous or titillating when you are on the side of the person who is wanting a real connection or, or at least wanting some, some kindness. So that's why I did it. And I, and I hope that there are more I mean, for sure, there have. I'm not suggesting like I've I've created this uh, created this this type of narrative. Obviously, not. That couldn't be farther from the truth. But I do hope that you know we start to see a lot more stories that women are involved with in being told from from their side. 
Me too. And that's, you know, I think, I think it's true. I think there aren't that many, you know, yeah, then maybe they're out there, but that's, that's why originally when I, when I found uh, Joyce Johnson's book, I was like, oh, finally, you know, and then I read, I saw your book. I'm like, yes, another, thank goodness this is out there because it was like, we forget. And, and especially, I feel like, especially in film, you know, these romantic comedies, it's, it's so true. It's always about, and then always the guy changes at the end. Oh, he's, you know, now, and I was like, in real life, that doesn't often happen, at least not for a long time. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and that the important story is his. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And the important journey is, is his and his behavior very often is presented as, as excusable, as justifiable, not even, not justifiable, but at least, okay, we should, we should pardon him. We should Mm -hmm. empathize because he's been through something Mm -hmm. that makes him treat women this way. But the, the, the trauma for some women of, of being involved with somebody who they love who is not only sleeping around, but is not um, treating them kindly, can be like <laughs> devastating. That's right. And so, and so that's one of the reasons that I, you know, I was like, I want to tell that story. It's not all, you know, it's not that the women are just like, hey, why doesn't he call? You know, it's, it's, there's a lot going on on the other side, as well as the fact that they have their own stories, they have their own lives, there are things going on outside of that guy. And so um, that's what I wanted to talk about in this book. Yes, which you did so well. And also you just mentioned something about sort of like, oh, how we can sort of excuse the behavior because, oh, they had a tough childhood, for example. And you do showcase that with circus and this. You give hints of that. But what I felt was that, you know, you're sort of saying that, yes, like we can have empathy for for characters like this but or people like this, but not excuse the behavior, you know? So it's sort of like, yes, we see why they are the way they are and have that empathy for that, but also doesn't mean it's okay to treat, discard people or, you know, treat them poorly. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like one of the reasons as a writer, as well as a reader, as a watcher of, of television, any kind of storytelling, I, want rich, complex, multidimensional characters, regardless of whether they're the bad guy or the good guy, so to speak, right? And so it wouldn't make sense to me to have created in Circus a character who is this one dimension and that dimension is he's a womanizer and he's a jerk and he mistreats women. I wanted to know him. I wanted to flesh him out because I felt like that would be more compelling just as a piece of fiction to have this character be rich. It also makes sense to me that you understand why women are so compelled by him, right? If he's just sitting there being a jerk the whole time, you'd go, why am I reading this? Why would anybody want to be with this guy? But I also do feel like, okay, sure, let's give this guy his due. He has his own history that might be filled with trauma, that might be filled with at least difficulties that make him who he is today. But as one of the female characters says to him, that doesn't necessarily give you the permission to mistreat others. That doesn't mean that you, you know, your needs, your pain trumps theirs. And I think that that's true of, of, 
any difficult person, right? We can give you our sympathy or our kindness for whatever it is you've been through, but that doesn't mean that we have to endure suffering from you. Yes. And it can take a long time for people to come to that, I think, when they themselves maybe have had a background of trauma yes, or difficulty. For sure. and that's another thing I wanted to point out or talk to draw out with you and talk about this in your book. I've been listening to this podcast called Navigating Narcissism. I think that's what it's called by Dr. Romani, who I don't know if you know. Her. I have. She's yeah. Phenomenal. I've heard. Yeah, I've seen yeah. videos of hers on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She has a whole YouTube channel. And she talks a lot about sort of, I think a lot of people that have a background of trauma or had difficult childhoods, not all, but often sometimes navigate or gravitate, sorry, to people that are narcissistic, you know? So, um, this is what I'm learning. Yes, yes, we <laughs> I'm all not a therapist, are. We a disclaimer are. here. Right, yes. <laughs> but one thing I was listening to this podcast where she was talking about how, you know, so often these very charismatic narcissistic personalities, we are drawn to them, we get hurt by them. And we feel really alone in that. And, you know, because she said there's not Yelp reviews for people, you know, but if you, if there were, you would see that like, oh, this is like, they just, it's like a, you know, a cut and paste kind of thing. They're doing this with, with a, a lot of people. And, and I thought about that with your book, because, you know, what I, I think is really remarkable is like, you're seeing all these different women, how they're all affected by circus, maybe differently, but all you know, hurt by him and how it's like, you know, they're not coming together except for a very few small places. And I, I really felt this Mm -hmm. when, and I'm trying to see if I can um, explain this for someone who hasn't read the book yet, but there are two characters, Peach is one, who's one of his many lovers. And then there's his daughter who's a teenage daughter. And there's this one moment in the book where they are interacting and I was really, and I don't know if you were, you know, when you were writing this, this was like an intention of yours, but it really felt like really profound for me, having them come together and sort of experience each other. And they both sort of had this very different relationship with the same man, but were both hurt by him in different ways. And then sort of, I sort of, as I was reading it, sort of seeing Coco, this teenage daughter, almost see like a future for what it could be for her in in some way. And Peach sort of looking back maybe on her like childhood, a little glimpse of it and and seeing maybe pieces of herself in Coco. Maybe, maybe I'm just projecting too much. No, I think that's an accurate reading. I think that that's an accurate reading of that chapter and that, that exchange and, and definitely part of the intention in it, you know, maybe just really quickly, I can say that, In the book, in the very first chapter, Circus is with a woman named Maggie, who's his sort of, the woman who kind of has his heart. And she tells him she's pregnant and he abandons her. And through the course of the rest of the book, connects or reconnects with other women. Women he's been with before, women he picks up in bars, women that he runs into. And then he also has a, an ex-wife who's still sort of carrying a torch. And then he's got his daughter, Coco, who's going through this moment of really trying to figure out who she is and what she's about, particularly in her relationships with men. And each chapter is told from a different woman's perspective. So that's sort of an overview for, for people who haven't read it. So... One thing I, I want to say, too, is I, I I don't necessarily 
think of, and well, not even necessarily, I never thought of Circus as a narcissist. His behavior is definitely narcissistic in a lot of places. But I do think that he he's that kind of person who is so kind of self-absorbed and hasn't necessarily had to have a lot of experiences in his life where he's been challenged to be less self-absorbed. And he's an artist. And I think, you know, and I can say as an artist myself, there is a level of self-focus, right, to be generous, that is going to happen that probably is, is part of the impetus to doing your creative work as well as one of the skills or, or one of the facets of your identity that allow you to keep doing it, right? That you're able to, I was just talking about this with a friend the other day, being able, it's like a Saturday night, like, you know what, I just want to spend this evening with myself in my own head, writing a song or painting something. That is a level of, of self-focus that is also probably going to turn you into uh, somebody who in your relationships has a lot more self-focus than the, the average person. But what's interesting about what you've raised here with the idea of narcissism is what is it about the person who is attracted and gets involved and stays involved with somebody who is not giving them what they want, which is what's happening with circus. And I would argue, similar to that that doctor that you mentioned, that there is some wound whether it's a trauma or not is going to probably, it depends on the different characters. And in my mind, some of the women who become involved with him do have traumas and others, there's a wound and in others, there's just a need that they're not really spending enough time becoming aware of to, to extract them from that relationship. Some of the women I think don't genuinely like him. He's just kind of come around at a time where they have a need right? Or they have uh, an emptiness in their lives that he's fulfilling. So I wanted to make sure with each of these women, right? I mean, imagine if every woman was just pining for him in the same way and for the same reasons, that would be a really boring book to read, right? So I, I needed to make sure that their attraction to him is different, right? What it is about him physically or what it is about him as a person they are drawn to is different. That what's what in them at this moment in their lives is broken that allows them to engage and stay engaged for the length of time that they have been or will be in the course of the book and how they're going to respond to it, right? It, again, if each one of them was like, why aren't you calling? I don't know, you know, boring. So they, they have to have their agency, which I wanted to give every single one of them, but they're going to sort of exercise it differently. One of them, for example, is there's a real sort of manipulation. She's smart. She gets what he's about. And so in order to get what she wants from him, she's able to sort of target his fragility and weakness and use it to at least try relationship. And then there will be another woman who's a little bit more, has a little less control over her emotional life and the anger and sadness she feels and is going to express that in a much more sort of visceral way. But it does come back to, for me, it came back to what's inside of these women that is making them attached to this person yes. Yes. Uh, and, and doing some exploration there. Thank you for, for that. I think it's so, it's, that's what made it so rich because these, 
these women are each of them in their own right, very complex, as we all are as humans, you know, layered people. Right. Mm-hmm. And I do think you bring up a good point too. It's like thinking about sort of what makes us, and I, I, you and I have a little bit talked off the record about, I think both of us sort of having had experiences of just sort of maybe ourselves being drawn to this kind of character in the past. And I had to, a certain point, at a certain point, look at myself like, oh, the pattern here is me. You know, like I'm, right, I'm right. going, and so I think in this book, there's a lot of that too, is like, you know, at least as the reader or as you, the author writing this is, is you're really looking and sort of pointing to like, oh, what is it, is it about these women and their own lives that they're choosing this over and over again, which is what you were just pointing to. But I think that's really important for, for those of us who do have the tendency to, you know, go, go towards, towards this kind of man, (laughs) you know, like what, it's not just him. Yeah, there's a, you've got me thinking about so many different things. And, and the first is that, as I said to you when we had our initial conversation, it took a while to get this book into the world. It took me uh, two years to find an agent. I sent it to 50 agents before I finally signed with mine. And during the journey of finding an agent and the disappointment and, frankly, agony of trying to get an agent, I kept thinking, and this isn't my sort of writers have the reputation of thinking they're putting, you know, jewels into the world and why can't the world catch up with my genius? It wasn't coming from a place like that. It was coming from an awareness of how many people, especially women, are in relationships like this, have been in relationships like this, choosing people who are unavailable, staying in relationships where you are not getting your needs met, staying in relationships with somebody who's not prioritizing you is so, so common. And so when I was having so much trouble in the beginning getting an agent, I, I said, don't you realize how many people are going to resonate with at least the premise of this book. And so I I think that that is one of the reasons that I wanted to write it. I mean, lots of friends I had at the time that I was writing this were in relationship, maybe not with musicians, but we're in relationships where every time we met, we had to spend a couple of hours talking about whatever text he sent or why he did whatever it was he did. And so, you know, and I, I didn't mind But it's again, speaks to the reality that this is just a very, very common relationship. So I feel like that's the first piece, right? This is a story. This is a romantic situation that so many people have been in. So as far as being drawn to unavailable men, unavailable people, like I said, I know a lot of people. In fact, I know a lot of men who, who are the same. When I was involved in my relationship that that sort of triggered the idea for this book, I was involved with a musician, nothing, absolutely nothing like my character, Circus Palmer. I totally invented Circus Palmer because the guy that I was seeing, you know, bless him, was not somebody who was suitable or, you know, interesting for for a piece of fiction. And I also just needed that distance. So I, I created a guy from scratch. But I tried to do some work around it. Why am I drawn to this person. What is it about him? Because what was unique about that particular situation, and it was not my first with a musician, and it was not my first with somebody who wasn't emotionally available, but what was very clear to me was that this guy is really 
not worth this investment. I mean, again, he, he was talented, he was interesting, he was an attractive person, but he definitely wasn't worth, I mean, who is, the pain that I was in in trying to stay on his radar, to convince him in whatever, you know, ways I, I could that I and this relationship was worth more of his time and attention. And I realized that, okay, for sure, there's work I've got to do on myself. What trauma, what wound, what hole inside of me am I trying to fill by being with this person? But I also did a little work on, well, what is it about him? And interestingly, I realized that I thought that he had a certain kind of intensity or charisma that I didn't think I had or didn't have enough of. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I admired that about him. And once I recognized that, I was able to start distancing myself from him because I realized, well, this is, these are qualities that I can cultivate in myself. These are qualities that I am attracted to because I don't see them in myself. And if I can sort of balance my awareness of that with my awareness of how little I'm getting, then I can just appreciate that charisma and that intensity and start walking away from it. And so I think that there, there are those two pieces. What is it about me that's drawn to someone, someone that's not available? And what is it about this person that is so exciting to me that I can extract from him and incorporate in some way into my own life? And I used that in part to create the women in this book you know, to answer that, both of those questions for each one of them and to make sure that the answer was different for each one of them. And that was hopefully what made them compelling and rich and, and distinctive. Absolutely. I'm so happy you mentioned this. It's really, I think it's really going to resonate with a lot of people. I think I remember either hearing or reading you say in an interview, you were talking about sort of a a lot of times with creative people that we're attracted to with specifically musicians, how, you know, we often can see their music as being like the deepest part of their soul. And that's very compelling, you know, and it really can make us feel kind of a connection to them that maybe we wouldn't otherwise have or feel. And I was really thinking about this because having been been someone who's been working with musicians for my whole adult life and most of my friends are musicians and people I've dated are musicians and how true I think that is you know and how I I think all, sort of like in a way like the way we especially when we're younger can watch a film or a tv show and sort of fall in love with an actor who plays his character that was that's really like interesting to us and and deep and sensitive and we are like oh my gosh you know and suddenly we're putting this person's photos on our walls and you know all these things and it's like we're forgetting that that's just a character they're playing you're making me think of something and it's not coming together clearly yet But it's interesting, so I'll start throwing it out and seeing what happens. What you're making me think is that creativity is incredibly attractive um, and compelling because no matter what that creativity is, 
a meal that a, a great chef makes, a song that a musician uh, writes, a, a dance number. I, I remember reading a book once and I fell in love with the author because I loved the book so much. I mean, that's happened a lot of times. And it's totally understandable that it would be because I do think when you are engaging with someone's creative work, in a lot of ways, you're getting maybe closest to who they are. I don't know if that's entirely true, but what you are getting close to is a very rich part of what they are and what we are as human human beings that's not accessible in all people, right? And so as a creative person, you have access to a part of the human experience and your own existence as a human being that either not other people have access to or are choosing not to access or whatever. And so when you engage with someone else's work, that's part of the reason I imagine that it feels so compelling, interesting, fascinating, sexy. That to me is clear. But the part that I'm not sure about yet and that would be interesting to examine is why it doesn't necessarily feel like it always goes both ways. Why is it that creative men have this fascination to us as a culture and this fascination to us as women, those of us who have relationships with men, that doesn't seem to to go in the opposite direction? Of course, there are men who are, uh, for sure, who are attractive to creative women, of course. But, and, and the culture is. But as far as that, as, as their creativity being a reason for you to put up with their behavior, their narcissism. I remember when that movie, which I actually liked, by um, Paul Thomas Anderson with Daniel Day-Lewis. He's making clothes. I forget what it's called now. But um, I remember that someone wrote a review of the movie and was sort of talking about this very common narrative, which is the genius man who is a genius creator or artist of some sort. And the women, whether it's the wife or the lovers, usually both, who set aside anything they could possibly want in their own lives or their own creative lives or as artists and anything they could want romantically in service to that creative man and his genius. And that any bad behavior, whether it's romantic misbehavior or whether it's just being a plain jerk to other people or being eccentric in a way that's off-putting is, is okay because he's a creative genius. And it doesn't go that way. Right. If it's a woman, she's a diva and she's difficult. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think that that's one piece of it. But then the other piece is, well, why isn't it? Because creativity is just as erotic and exciting in a woman as it is in a man. So why can't we have these female creators who have just as much fascination to us as a culture because of their creativity, not just their sex appeal, right? Yeah. As mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as we do men who had the same, who carry the same, you know, fascination, hold the same fascination in our shared imagination. But the other piece is uh, that I want to go back to that you mentioned is, is Coco. It was never necessarily my intention with her, although it definitely emerged as a, a huge, you know, strong thread of her story that 
her journey is I've got a mother who is pretty neglectful, a little self-absorbed. I've got a father who is a womanizer and in one chapter brings a woman to my house. (laughs) And I'm at the age where I'm trying to figure out who I am. I know I like boys and I know they don't really like me. And I don't know who to be, how to be with them and in my life and in my body and in my sexuality that's budding and how any of that relates to all the other aspects of who I am outside of men. And in this book, she's going on that journey of self-discovery in that, in that context and in the family that she's a part of. And I think what's interesting, and I don't want to give, I, I detest spoilers. I will not give anything away. But part of my, her journey, I think, in this book is, or the, the question that the book asks is, kind of like what you said, is she, over the course of, you know, through what happens to her in the book, is she going to end up, when she hits her 20s and 30s, in relationships with men like Circus? Or is, because of what she's been through in this book, is she going to have healthier relationships where she has a lot more agency and gets what it is that she wants and needs in mutually respectful, loving relationships. I will not answer that question. Um, I think everybody, once they get to the end of the book, will have a different answer. People have different answers. But that's what I think her journey is. And so when she does meet one of his lovers, Peach, that's the sort of moment where I'm kind of shining a light on that question, right? And so having these two meet kind of shows that dynamic. You've got the girl who's working through whatever issues are going to potentially determine the kinds of relationships she has with men in 10 years. And then you've got her meeting a woman who's having a relationship, maybe because she didn't do that work or whatever, um, who's having that kind of relationship with, with a man. So that's one of the treasures. Coco is everybody's favorite character. She's my favorite character. And I think one of the treasures that she brings to that book is these are the formative years for women, and she's in them. And let's see what she makes of them and who she becomes. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I, just to echo that again, that, that, that chapter, really, that was maybe one of my favorite moments in the whole book of like them coming together. Um, it was really profound and beautiful. Thank you. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, yeah. And I, just to, to circle back to something you were saying about um, just about the, about the men and their compellingness, you know, these creative men. I'm going to be sitting with that question or that thought for a while. It's really interesting to me. And I, I do wonder myself. And it, part of it is maybe because, you know, we are not accustomed to seeing men who are really sensitive and have these deep parts, perhaps like, you know, that's not celebrated as much. So maybe that's part of it, you know, maybe piece of it. But I'm just thinking a lot about this as, as sort of perennial question of, you know, can we separate the art from the yeah. artist and how often yeah. we don't? No, it's interesting. I'm going to, I like to listen to the, these podcasts. And so I'm going to listen again, specifically for this part of our conversation, because I do think it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that when you have, I mean, think of Beyonce, right? When you think of the, the women who are our cultural heroes, especially, I guess, performers, artists who are performers, obviously there's respect for their art, 
but I think that the the people who surround them are very often it's about the fame, it's about the beauty, right? It's about the glamour, and not as much about okay, this is this is a creative artist, and this art that resides inside of this person needs to be handled carefully, and that's why we allow them to throw things at us, right? Or we allow them to uh, dismiss who we are as human beings, or we work for them as their assistants and and put up. I mean. As soon as I say that, right, I think of right, examples right. of women who, who have similar reputations. Sure. But I do think, generally speaking, male artistry, male creativity is prized um, and revered in a way that, that female creativity and artistry doesn't seem to be as much, or at least in a, in a different way. And maybe, you know, I'm going to think about this and in an hour think, no, I don't think that's true. But right now, it's there, there's something in it that that feels yeah. uh, feels real and, and worth exploring. Yeah. And, and just also, also, I was I was having the conversation recently with Nabil Ayers, um, whose book yeah. is about. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah you know uh-huh, him, so for sure. His, yeah. So his dad, and he yeah. How he has a different relationship. Right. His dad. He has a different relationship with his father than the world does, right? And I think there's also this sort of, and, and your book also points to this as well, is there's like a certain kind of, it's a particular sort of heartbreak or pain that those those who have the relationship on a personal level with mm-hmm. the artist versus those who see the artist as just right. the artist and that persona, right? right? And, and I think that's something, I'm also very interested in this again, I think being on the ground so closely with, with a lot of these people and seeing sort of both sides mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, and how it is complex. And I think a lot of times we forget that they are full human beings and people, complicated people, not just, you know, who they're presenting to the right. world. Well, do you see a difference? Do you feel like you see a difference since you've you've been working in this particular industry oh, and yeah. the way women are seen creatively versus, Ab- yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think one day I want to write about this because it's something, it really is interesting to me how, you know, I mean, in, 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 in a multitude of ways, and I'll think, I'm just thinking the first thing that flashed into my mind, I mean, of course I have my own personal experiences, but I have a good friend who had a very brief relationship with a musician who's very, very famous, like, you know, on cover of Billboard kind of thing. And, and, you know, she fell for him because of his music and was just like already sort of like, you know, enchanted by him. They had this fling and he was very seductive and all the things. And then she finds out he's married, you know, and, mm, and, yeah. and, and, and everyone just worships his man, right. you know, and meanwhile, she's having this private pain, right. you know, and I mean, this is like one of so many examples, but I mean, on another side of it, like too, like I, I am, I've been friends with musicians who people are like, just worship. And I'm like, yeah, they're great, but they also are complicated people. They have, you know, they're hurting people too. And they're. Um, there's just so many, there's so, it's just so layered, you know, they're, but they're just, we forget that they're human beings. And I think that's, you know, because art really does so much. I mean, this is musings of the artist, right? So we can talk about this. Like art does so much for us. It connects us to our humanity. I mean, it gets us at the core and whatever, you know, you can read a book, you can hear a song, you can watch a dance performance, right? Hear someone play piano and just be so deeply moved. I mean, we like to, especially as creative people, we like to present art as this like 
savior to humanity, but gosh, I really think it is in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's not a surprise that when we are moved by someone's art, that they, you know, they're sort of in our imaginations, uplifted to the point of like mythological proportions in our, in our culture, you know, and it is kind of ridiculous when you think about it, because they are people and they go to the bathroom and they mess up their relationships and they eat breakfast and yeah, they, yeah. you know, especially, you know, a lot of creatives are kind of, you know, have some damage that they're working through in their lifetimes. And so it's an interesting part of, of being alive is the relationship we have with our, our creative heroes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also kind of interesting to think of, what it must be like to be somebody who has reached that level and sustained it for so long. What, what happens to them as, as human beings, you know, how do you, like, I read some silly article, you know, poking around online about like the most, I forget why there, I was doing some kind of research and I either fell down a rabbit hole or somehow this was related. I don't know why I was looking up the word writer R-I-D-E-R to sort of see how they worked because of something that I was working on and found this article that was like the the most bizarre, you know, demands in in celebrities writers. And it was like Mariah Carey and Madonna and whatever else. And, you know, they're famous people and that's different than what we're sort of talking about. But I remember thinking, okay, yeah, this is pretty outrageous, but also thinking like, how do you be like Jennifer Lopez? You're Jenny from the block. You're just Mm -hmm. a, you know, you're a woman like Mm -hmm. anybody else who lives in the Bronx, right? That's where she's from. And then you become Jennifer Lopez and you want diamond encrusted headphones in every hotel room or something. How does that happen in the human mind? You know what I mean? And, and, and yes, part of that is us yes. as a culture, right? And, and part of, and so how does that work? That's fame. How does that work as a creative person where you are so admired for your creativity and artistry for years and decades of your life? How don't, why wouldn't you become so bizarrely self-centered and, right. and, and eccentric and, and manifesting behaviors that are, weird especially when you're yeah Mm -hmm. yeah no no no. I'm so I I, I'm right there with you I'm I'm really fascinated by this as Mm -hmm. well but I'm just thinking but then there are people who get to that level and are are the kindest still the kindest people and aren't that way and that's what's so interesting to me there's a lot of interesting stuff here you know one of the people that I have loved most well actually maybe my favorite celebrity artist of all time is Prince and I was just at the Miami Book Fair and a woman wrote a book about music and how music affects us and why it's so, why it enriches our lives and why we connect with it so much. And she was talking about how Prince was hyper creative. I think that's what she called it. And the point being that he didn't like decide to write music. He didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write a music today. It was just constantly coming at him songs were constantly coming at him he he had no control over it but he obviously harnessed it and then he spent because he was started being famous in his 20s 
years, decades of just being able to be Prince and write music and to just totally inhabit, right, his creativity. And I wondered, and, and you know, I mean, he died and that was a very hard day for, for so many of us. But he never had the reputation of being a jerk. You know, he never had the reputation of being this demanding guy, like I said, who threw things across the room when he was angry at people. So he seems like the kind of person who, when you when he did have that entourage, and I don't know, I'm making it up and mythologizing him because I love him, right? But I imagine that there was this, this sense from the people around him of like, this is a person who carries something that we need to treasure and take care of, right? And I don't know, there does seem to be, yeah, there seems to be a difference maybe. And again, this might be something that I email you later and say, I've totally changed my mind on this, but there <laughs> seems the, to be something. Life. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There must be, to me, there is something different about like fame and preserving fame right, right. versus preserving a craft that someone yes. does really well. Yes. Yeah. This is so interesting to me because I, was, I think a lot about sort of the deep person we are and this persona and especially with creatives, you know, what we're talking about. And I was just thinking about back to the reason I started this podcast originally was years and years ago, I was um, in Nashville interviewing artists for, for Pandora where I used to work and, and in the country music scene, you know, there's tons of, these artists that are very media trained. And I remember I had this distinct memory of interviewing artist after artist. And a lot of these artists that I was interviewing were sort of newer to the scene. And they were, you know, when I was asking them questions, they were very clearly sort of rehearsed answers. And they were sort of trained to answer this thing because they were like, oh, this is my story that I, the, my publicist has told me to say. This, that's what it felt like, you know? And, and then I, ended up interviewing in one, this day, Wynonna Judd, who was the complete opposite of that. And she's someone who's very, you know, who's famous, well-known. And she came in and she was so raw. And it just, I felt her vulnerability. I felt her authenticity. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to have those kinds of conversations as much as possible. And you know, and it, of course it depends on the other person. They have to be available or they have to be open to right. that, having that kind of right. conversation and vulnerability. But but it really fascinates me, you know, this sort of like this like costume that we can put on. I love what you've just said. And I love the whole concept of the of the podcast for that reason. I mean, it's really interesting to sit with a, an artist, a famous person, whatever, and really to, to the best that you can have an, a really honest conversation with them. I remember I was, um, I won't mention any names because I adore both of these people. I live in Los Angeles. So I was at a taping of a uh, talk show uh, with a host I really li- love and a movie star that I really love. And the whole time I felt like this is just, he's still being his persona. He's still being Bob Smith, we'll we'll say, right? Like from, I'm watching a two hour video (laughs) and all of his gestures, the way he's moving his head, the jokes, the stories. I feel like this is just a, a long 
Esquire profile. You know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm getting anything from him. I want to see him. Then there was one moment where he kind of nervously bit his fingernails. And I was like, ah, there he is. There's a real person. And then it went away. And so as much as we love these narratives, right? And these, these personas that famous people and artists create for us, right? It's, it gives, it makes it easier for us to attach, right? And identify them. I think for a lot of us, there's also like, but I really want to know who you are. I really want to know what makes you tick. I want to know how your body moves when you're not being the superstar. And, uh, and so I think, any opportunity we have to, to hear those conversations, I think, are, are wonderful. Because I think that's part of what makes art interesting. Like, what's your life like? How do you access the, the, the creativity inside of you? What are the challenges? Where does, where does this come from? Who are you? What's it like being you? You know? In the talking about that, that um, desire to be among the people that, you know, you just kind of feel you can be a true self with and have the depth and all those things. There's this, and I know you've been asked this a lot, probably on your, while well, you've been promoting this book, um, there's this article that you wrote, I think it was a couple years ago for the Huffington Post about that. The headline is I gave up on love and it was one of the best decisions I made, which is a very compelling title. But when you read the piece, it's not so much that you gave up on love, but it's like a reframing of the role that romantic love has in your life. It's a title that they titled it, the Huffington Post titled it, and it definitely you could say it's clickbait, but it's absolutely true. I gave up on love, and at the time it felt like the best decision that I had made. And in part it was because, you know, I have had a lot of relationships in my life to varying degrees of commitment, mostly not <laughs> committed, um, despite my my intentions and, and wishes and really putting myself out there in a lot of different ways. I've never done a lot with the apps, but, you know, going to parties and hoping I would meet somebody or going to an event and considering it a failure because I leave feeling lonely. And I was involved with somebody, or I wasn't even involved. We went on a couple of dates. And as I think I said in the piece, it might sound ridiculous to go on two dates with somebody and then decide I'm giving up on love. But it had come after decades of trying to have relationships and meet somebody that I could go the distance with and not succeeding. And feeling like there were all kinds of feelings and anxieties and activities in my life that were devoted or weighed down by my desire to be in a relationship, whether, like I said, it was being in an event and hoping to meet somebody and not being able to concentrate on the conversations I was having or enjoy the event itself because I wanted to meet somebody there, or whether it was meeting somebody, going on a couple of dates and staying in a situation, right? That I was like, I don't actually really like this person probably, but maybe it, I will if I just keep doing, you know, all of the things that I was doing because I really wanted to be in a relationship. And once I decided, you know, I'm sick of, of this. And I live in Los Angeles, which is a notoriously hard place to have relationships. Once I decided, what if I just don't think about this anymore? What if I just 
live my life, which seems like a ridiculous, like, uh, no kidding (laughs) kind of conclusion to come to. But I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to worry about it anymore. I don't want to live my life anymore in every day of my life. And it wasn't even that bad, but I don't want to live leading from the place of I needed a partner. Yes. Yeah. And once I de- decided I'm not doing it anymore, a weight was literally lifted. And since then, I have, I have had, I was in a relationship for a little bit. I've gone on dates. You know, these were people, like I said, who stepped into my life and made it known that they were interested in something. And I said, all right, let's give it a try and see what happens. But I'm not, uh, to this day, I have not like pursued anything. I haven't, uh, I'm not on the apps and I'm, I'm not in any kind of, I just live my life and it feels really good. In fact, um, this is an essay that I may write later. I was with someone who I was interested in romantically. And so I felt that, you know, hope that's a little tinged with anxiety around like what's, what's going to happen here and, and feeling myself do what we all do, regardless of gender, right? Of like, I like this person. So I, I'm realizing that I'm saying things in a way that I wouldn't say them nor- normally, or that I'm agreeing with things that maybe I don't entirely agree with, or presenting myself in a way that, you know, or making alterations to myself in a way that I think would be appealing to this person. And once it became clear to me, and I never asserted, I I never said anything about being interested in him because I don't do that anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I wait to be told, hey, I'm interested in this. Um, But once it became clear, like, I think he just wants to be friends, it was a relief to not, to just be like, oh, I'm switching all that off. Now I'm just going to be me totally. Yeah. And we have a great friendship. Wow. And so, and so I think that that's the way to be. Like, in fact, I was just talking about this with a girlfriend. She's kind of come to a place of, you know, I'm going to let, and it wasn't because of the article or even talking about that HuffPost piece. She just kind of came to the place of maybe I'm going to start living like it's not the most important thing for me to find a relationship. And she's dating and it's kind of fun, like dating this guy and maybe seeing what happens with that one and focusing on her career and other things that are happening in her life. And I think that that's the best way to live because there's nothing we can do. If we, if we don't have a job, we can apply to jobs, we can network, we can whatever, but finding someone to fall in love with, I mean, there's really nothing we can do yeah. except exist yeah. and hope our paths cross. It's luck. A lot of and it is luck. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And so I think that that's, that's the way to do yeah. it. Live your life, enjoy your life, engage in every conversation you're having at every event. Don't worry about when you're sitting at a place where there might be a romantic interest. Don't sit there hoping that that person sees you and carrying yourself in a way that it happens because if the person's there and they're interested and they're available, they will, they will come or your, your eyes will meet or whatever else. 
And it's probably, as I was saying to my, my girlfriend, that's the, that's probably the best way to find yourself in a partnership is like, Hey, this is kind of cool. Let's, let's, let's keep doing this. That's no, that's great. And I love that piece so much. And I think it's, I don't know if you feel this way, but for me, I've come to this place of just feeling like I'm, I'm good. You know, I I want to really, I would love to find somebody that I'm excited about and that I connect with. But for me, it's like, I've come to the place where it's like, it just feels like it would be a bonus to my life. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like that's the thing that my life is incomplete without. Right. And I think that that's, I think that that's a lesson that we all have to sort of come to. And I think it's harder for women because we're really told, you know, directly and indirectly, like this is, this is really, I mean, again, I was just talking to, it was the same friend, like the pressure of like, oh, but when you meet the, then when, if you, you know, there are lots of women who don't want to have kids, but are told exactly. regularly, but no, you, you do. do. Right. Right. <laughs> it's right. You really do, you know? And so there's, there's this pressure on women oh, yeah. to, to be in a relationship. And so I feel like we feel like it's a failure. Mm-hmm of character that really isn't true. I mean, it really is a matter of luck to, to meet somebody that, that you really love and, and can go the distance with. And in the meantime, there's a lot of other things to do in life. And, you know, this book coming out um, for me really illuminated that because I'm not, I haven't been in a relationship in the last six months, and, but I am happier than I have been in a long time Mm -hmm. and it's not because I'm not in a relationship or I'm not trying to be the like hey I'm I'm single and loving it it's because I'm so happy with every other part of my life that it doesn't feel like anything's missing oh yeah absolutely you know what I mean and so and and that's how we should all be living going toward all of the other stuff that makes us happy so that if somebody does show up, we go, wow, cool. I get this too. Great. Let's do it. Totally. And living an authentic life for what's true for us and not what some story that we're told to live. I was just uh, speaking with the poet Ama Kojo about this too, you know, about the same thing and how that there's, it's just another way of living. And it's not, you know, I just wish we could finally get to a point where it's not like, you know, we're, we're given a script, as you said, as women Yeah. from the time. And I think especially in this culture, you know, um, that it's like, oh, we're supposed to do this to, in order to have a happy life. And it's like, who says who, you know, like it can, it can look, our lives can look so many different ways and be successful to us in different ways. I went out um, a few years ago. I think this is pre-COVID. I'm not remembering. It's all mush now with women um, who were significantly younger than me, two women who were significantly younger than me. And they were on the prowl, right? We, we, we started the night with like, I want to meet somebody tonight. That's, that's where they were coming from. I wasn't coming from that place. I was in the, I gave up on love phase of my life. And so we spent like hours. We went out, we had dinner, then we went to bars, we went and danced. And I had a really fun night they were they didn't have a fun night and I could just tell the whole night I could just see they were their bodies were stressed mm-hmm. they were they the, every conversation they got on get into was is this worth it is this person gonna be my boyfriend 
You know what I mean? Or should I be talking to this woman who just started talking about how nice my shoes are when I could be, you know, Mm -hmm. and they weren't having a good time. And not only was that a bummer for them, I'm having a blast because I couldn't care less at that point about meeting anybody and they're not, but also men were coming up to me. And, and I think they were coming up to me because I looked fun. Yeah, you were living I looked life. approachable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I looked approachable. You know, I looked open. And, you know, I left the night. I didn't have any numbers. I didn't uh, go out with anybody I met that night. But I had a good time. And so I think that, I think that that's the key. We, we want to be happy in this life. And the, the, the one thing we unfortunately don't have any control over is whether or not we meet a soulmate. Mm-hmm. In the form of a romantic and so, partner, because there can be soulmates. Right, in the form of, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree, totally agree. A romantic soulmate. And so let's do all the other stuff and, yeah, hope for it. But, you know, all the other stuff is, is really good, too. There are a lot of people who are living with their soulmates and spending the rest of their time with their soulmates and that part of their life is covered and the rest isn't. Nobody yes, gets yes, everything, yes, you know? Exactly. And so, Nobody you know, yeah, mm-hmm. do, do the things that make your life feel meaningful. That's how I feel. And if you're a lucky person, your soulmate, your romantic soulmate will come along and, um, and add to it. And that could also come at any age too, which I think is so beautiful. Some of the partnerships that I find that are the most rich and beautiful that I see from the, at least from the outside, they came to the person later in life, like much later, you know? And, uh, and part of that perhaps is knowing ourselves better, you know, anyways, but, but I, I love, I just love what you're saying about how it's so true that we have to remember this, that we don't get everything in this life and that some of us are, lucky in one front and not the other and you know vice versa yeah it's something that I feel that my own life is kind of about and that I find connects the essays I write the books that I write and will probably write moving forward which is I feel like we're here to figure out who we are and what we're about as authentically as we possibly can And then to build a life around that and engage with other people Mm -hmm. in ways that nourish that. And we do that for each other. And so being in relationship, I think, that's healthy requires you to have a a good sense of of yourself and what you're about. But it also is just what, what I think brings our life the most meaning. And as I said, kind of what I think is the whole reason that we're here if I mean, maybe it's just an accident. We evolved and and we happen to have reason and stuff like that. But we're here and we're supposed to build authentic, rich lives. And so I think we should do that. And you're not missing your partner if you focus on the other aspects of your life. Yes. That, yes. He, that person will come. And I don't mean that in any kind of mystical way. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not saying that it's mystical or that it's like the universe is putting that person on your path. I'm just saying that because I don't really think it works that way. I think it's literally coincidence. Hey, I'm at this grocery store buying oranges and so are you. You're not going to miss that person. In fact, you probably have a better chance of meeting that person if you are doing the things that are meaningful to you. Because that person is too and you're going to connect 
uh, that's where, how you're going to connect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to, I, I do, I do want to talk about before we go about your publication journey, because we were talking about this before, um, we were recording and I think it's something that I, I really want people to hear about because it wasn't an automatic thing for you to just write this book and then boom, it's out in the world. I think more and more, as I was telling you before, that the more I talk to writers and artists, it's it's not, it, this is a story for most of us, but it doesn't get spoken about as much. We only see the wins on Instagram and, you know, on the New York Times list and all these things, but we don't, we don't see always the yeah. story behind it. So um, anything you want to share about your publication journey, I think is really valuable. So I have been writing all of my life, not trying to create a mythology around myself, but it's true. When I started learning to write letters and sentences, I started writing stories and books. My mother has some of them, and I never stopped writing. I wrote through grade school. I wrote through high school, college. I majored in writing. And when I was 25, I finished my first novel and tried to get it published. And since then, I've written five books, including this one that was published, over the course of 25 years and didn't get an agent and a book deal until I was 50. So I've been writing all of my life, but I've been trying for 25 years, all of my adult life basically, trying to get published. I've had hundreds of thousands, it feels like, of rejections. It's been a long, painful journey. By the time I finished this book, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm, it took me two years to find my agent. I sent queries to 50 agents before I signed with, with mine. The two years that I was doing that search were some of the hardest, most painful, even darkest periods of my life because I thought, this is never going to happen. This is my fifth book. I've been doing this for 25 years. This is why I think I've been put on this planet. This is the thing that gives me the most joy writing. And I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be read. This isn't going to happen for me. And I say all of this, not to end on a dark note, but to say it happened. I did get a book published. It's getting some buzz it's been a very wonderful six months, you know, since this book came out. This has been one of the best periods of my life, arguably the best. And I want to be honest about my journey because during the 25 years that I was trying to get published, and I will also say I think it's not going to take that long for most people. I don't know. I just was like, <laughs> I don't know how I got so unlucky, right? Um, to, to just not feel like I was even getting help. Like, I know I have some talent here, but I just can't find any opportunity to be helped along. It, it really felt that way. But I want to be honest about it because I think that there are a segment of people, and I am not talking about talent here. I'm just talking about sort of the business. I think that there are, are there are people who get books into the world because they know the right people 
uh, they go to the right schools. They're in, they're from the sort of communities where um, succeeding in the arts is, is a viable path, right? Um, the, their communities are filled with people who are succeeding in the arts, and so their paths are smoother, right? Um, there are people who have the money, the freedom, the space to write and do all of the things that you've got to do to succeed so their paths are faster, right? But for the majority of us, I think, it's just harder. I had a really, really tough go. And so my gratitude at finally having this moment where I have a book in the world and it's getting some lovely attention, Mm. I could not be more grateful. I could not be more humbled and, and I could not be happier. But I also want to be honest about how hard it was and that for the most part, most of the writers that I know, or at least a lot of the writers I know, it's not easy getting to this point. Um, And so for people who do want to get their book in the world, don't let the challenges you have confuse you. That doesn't mean you're not a good writer. That doesn't mean that nobody's interested in your work. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's not going to happen for you. My way of dealing with the trauma, to be frank, of constantly being rejected and nobody wanting to to um, put my, my work into the world over the course of 25 years was to not just be sad about it and keep hoping, right? You get a lot of advice of like, don't give up. But that doesn't really mean anything. To me, what I did and what I advise people when they ask is just keep trying to get better at the craft. You know, keep reading the people that you think are are great. Yes, yes. Listen to the feedback that you're getting about your own work. Take more classes. I mean, that's why I got my MFA. My undergraduate degree is in writing. And I got my MFA like 20 years later. I haven't ever done the math, but a significant, at least 10 years. No, it's more than that. Almost 20 years later. Because I was trying to get books published. I was like, all right, clearly I'm missing something. Clearly there's something that I'm doing as a writer that is that I need to address. And that may or may not be true for, for other people, but that's how I looked at it. How, how can I improve my, improve my craft? And that's what I kept working on. And hopefully the book in the world is a sign that I, at least for this book, right, got to do it every time. <laughs> I just want to say, Laura, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. And I, I think reading this book is so clear how much attention you gave to, I mean, even just the way that the form of the book really mimics its subject. And, and uh, there's so many like intricacies and things in here that are, you paid such close attention as a writer two things. And I mean, I've really noticed that and I'm sure people that read it do. So um, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad it's in the world. And I'm grateful to you for sharing that story because I, I think it'll hopefully inspire a lot of people and just sort of also be like, I don't know, just the nudge people need, I think, to to realize that they just need to keep going. And like you said, not just like, don't give up. It's more than that. Like keep going right. in the thing that you believe in. Like, yeah. Like, keep going with that and make your craft better. Not so necessarily it can get published, but also just so you are the best writer 
or artist, whatever the form may be, uh, you know, that you can be. And don't worry about the culture's fascination with the overnight success or the young success or the immediate, you know, because it's not the only story and it's not the usual story. For sure, there are people who are absolutely brilliant and they write their first novel at 25 and everybody's coming after them and they're, they're brilliant and we are so lucky to have them. But then there are also people who are working and toiling for decades, right, or at least years, and it's harder. There are lots of different ways and paths. Just because it's not happening quickly or easily doesn't mean that you're not on the right track. Amen. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Laura. This was a yeah, for sure. a rich conversation, and I just want to Yeah, fun. I love conversations like this. So thank you. This was really interesting. This episode was audio produced by Katie McMurrin. The music is by Madison Ward.